Welcome to Curious and Candid, conversations with those in pursuit of more. Today's guest is Kate King. Kate, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here with you today. You're very welcome. Um, I'm looking forward to our conversation, Kate. Uh, there's a lot that I want to get into with you, but before we kind of dig into your story and all the things that you have going on uh, currently, I kind of want to just ask you a few questions. I like to ask all the guests. I call them the conversational starter questions just to kind of get the conversational ball rolling, so to speak. So um, I'm curious, how do you start your day? Is there any specific routine or ritual you like to stick to on most days and on most mornings? Well, I wake up pretty early. I'm a 5.30, 5.45 a.m. person, and I like to wake up before my kiddos. So these days, my kids catch the bus at like 6.50 to school. And so um, I wake up around 5.30, and I have a cup of black tea with rose petals to start my day. And then I do the mom thing until the kids are on the bus. And then I do the entrepreneur thing after that. Excellent. Uh, have you always been a morning person or is that something maybe since you've had kids that you've kind of had to make that uh, change or adjustment? I have always been a morning person. I like to go to bed by like nine or nine 30. And so I feel like come 5 a.m. I'm ready for my day. And it was like that long before, I think even as a kiddo, I really appreciate the quietness and sort of the freshness of that time of day. Okay. So. Excellent. Good deal. Um, so we're going to get into your book uh, here in a minute. The next question is, what's your favorite book? And then if you do uh, listen or consume podcasts or kind of check in and out with podcasts, is there a favorite or go-to podcast? So favorite book, if there's more than one, please feel free to share more than one. And then if there's a podcast that you enjoy, um, uh, just kind of share that with us if you don't mind, Kate. Sure. I'll share two different books, kind of two different genres. Um, the Way of the Peaceful Warrior by Dan Millman was a really impactful book for me at a really pivotal time in my life. And I've reread it a few times since then. I've watched the movie and I just think it's a fantastic book for really any audience. So I love that one. And then the second one I'll recommend is The Way of Integrity by Martha Beck. This book, again, came to me at a pivotal time in my life, and it felt like it switched on a light bulb for me that I didn't even know was turned off. And I recommend this book on the daily to anyone who will listen. It's so great. And I think I've read it four times. Uh, so those are the books. And podcast-wise, I'd say I like I like the Huberman Lab podcast. Um, Andrew Huberman is super smart and easy to listen to, and I trust his research. So it's a great way for me to learn. Um, and kind of in hand with the way of integrity book, I listen to Martha Beck's podcast called the gathering pod, and it's just her funny, quirky, inspiring wisdom. Okay. So since, uh, you're an author yourself, uh, the book is titled The Radiant Life Project. Um, let's kind of just, uh, why don't you give us maybe like a, a, a bird's eye view and just kind of like a, a, a general synopsis of your book and why you wrote it? Because I'm assuming that there's a lot of maybe your life story or your life experiences that tie into your book. And I don't necessarily want you to unpack all of that right now because 
We're going to kind of pull back the layers of your life, but um, just share a little bit about, again, the synopsis of your book, why you wrote it, and uh, just maybe a little bit of other information that you might want to share about it. And then we're going to kind of uh, dig maybe more uh, in depth into your story, obviously here in a little bit. Sure. So if it's all, if it's all right, I'll flip your questions and I'll start with why I wrote it. Um, so I have a 17 year background as a licensed therapist and kind of working in private practice, having a lot of clinical experience and training. And I reached a point in the COVID pandemic where I was just trying to help like the whole world's mental health all at once. And it got me really burned out. So I decided to write this book as a distilled kind of consolidated resource of everything I know and every way I know how to help when people are in a place of either just looking for more self-discovery or if they're in a really tough place where they need to change and they need growth and they don't really know where to access that. So I thought that having a $30 resource that could go cross-continental and ripple out into the world would be a lot more accessible than me trying to have hour-long conversations with every single person on the entire planet, which is obviously impossible. So that was my intention. I just really wanted to teach what I have learned. And the book is a culmination of both my clinical experience and also my own personal story and my trauma healing and kind of why I know this work is so effective because I live it. I walk this talk and I do this work every day. So that's the why. And the what, uh, the synopsis of the book, this is a psychological self-help book that is really impactful for personal growth, personal development, trauma healing, relationship healing. It's like a jam-packed up-level your life resource that is really eclectic. It spans everything from neuroscience and information about the nervous system and brain all the way to Buddhist philosophy and Buddhist psychology. It talks about art therapy and the power of creativity and everything in between. So it's a real page turner. Every chapter offers something different that can impact and help you elevate your life to a place where it just feels like the light switch inside of you turns on and you feel happy to be alive and attracting the kinds of experiences that want to propel you further into a meaningful life and help you get unstuck. Beautiful. Uh, now, writing a book, uh, Kate, was that something that you've kind of always had an interest in or was it just because of maybe some of the events in your own life to where you you were just like, I, and your personal experiences being a therapist, you were just like, I've got to get this out to the world. Um, where, where were you kind of at before writing this book in terms of, again, was it a lifelong, you know, desire or was it because of certain circumstances that you're like, again, I've got to get this out. So this is actually my second book. Um, my first book I wrote back in 2014 and it came through me in a very similar way. So I, I tell you this to explain that I've sort of always had an affinity for writing. Even as a kid, I was constantly creative writing and writing stories and very imaginative. Um, and then when I had my first baby back in 2014, I was like, oh my gosh, why doesn't anyone talk about this side of all of this? And so I wrote the book, The Authentic Mother at that time. And it kind of feel like the book wrote 
me at that time, actually. It flowed right through me and it was kind of what I needed. And then something similar happened with the Radiant Life Project around that time of burnout. I took a sabbatical for my clinical practice, which we can talk more about when you're ready. Um, but this book just flew out of my fingertips and onto the computer. And before I knew it, I had 75,000 words written and I was sending it out to publishers. So I have a really strong affinity for the word, the written word, and also the spoken word. I think words are just really powerful. They can cast spells, they can attract things, they can, you know, hurt things, harm things, heal things. I think words are important and I like to use them for healing. Mm. Um I enjoy writing, uh, and it's always been a part of my life since I was a, a youth. And for me and other people that I've had conversations with, Kate, and I'm 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 gonna I'll get to the question, but I just want to see if you can kind of relate. Uh, for me personally, writing is a type of release. There's things that are deep inside of me that I might not be able to express with my words, or even really know how to express audibly, but through writing, I can kind of get some deep inner things out on paper and it's a release and it makes me feel good. Right. And I've, I've had other people, authors and just people that write kind of like I do for enjoyment, uh, you know, agree with me on that. Is that something that you find, uh, in terms of writing as it being a release and therapeutic, or is it maybe a little bit different for you personally? It's very therapeutic for me. I like processing through writing. It helps me kind of tease through all my thoughts and really find the central focus that is like these little nuggets that help me gain insight and help me sort of get the information I need from the different levels of my psyche. Um, and, you know, as being a creative pursuit, I think it's similar to art therapy in the sense that there is a form of catharsis and release in being creative that our nervous system really needs from us. It's like a discharge of energy and it helps us move and sublimate things through our bodies so that we can kind of have space for freshness and for awareness. And we can also mull something around and digest it until it makes the type of sense that we're looking for while also creating building blocks for further awareness and putting pillars in place where we can then build structures upon where we learn something about ourselves that maybe we didn't know before. So yeah, I would agree with you. I think writing is really important for that. Cool. Very cool. All right. Uh, next uh, kind of conversational starter question here. Uh, what life lesson have you uh, been taught or uh, have you learned within the last year? This year, I've been navigating self-trust a lot and not doubting myself when I have a really clear gut reaction, even if it doesn't make perfect sense to my mind that's always looking for proof. Um, I think it's really important to connect in with that inner compass that I think we all have and to trust it when sometimes it points true north in a direction that maybe you didn't think was true north. But um, if you trust it in hindsight, it will make sense. How do you personally, Kate, then kind of connect with that inner compass to use your, uh, you know, terminology? What is there steps is it kind of like just an intuitive um, uh, process to where you kind of like practice it more and it strengthens strengthens within you? What does the inner compass tapping into that look like for you uh, 
personally? Essentially, I use a practice that I call true yes and true no. Um, it's a somatic embodiment practice, which means that I'm not exclusively in my headspace. I'm in an integrated mind, body, and spirit connected place where I listen to the sensations of my body rather than the monkey mind in my head that's telling me what other people want me to do or what might make me socially favorable, what might keep me out of trouble. Instead, I'm looking for somatic kind of symptoms in the body, like tension versus lightness or uh, butterflies in my stomach or grinding of my teeth or points behind my eyes. These are all little signs that my body uses to communicate yes or no. And I've learned through time, starting very simply with, you know, what do we want to eat tonight? Hamburger, hot dog, right? And then listening to the body, like, how do we feel about this option? And if the body feels warm and light and kind of buoyant, that's a yes. And if the body feels tense and closing in and restricted, that would be a no. And so you can practice this by starting with simple things like food choices and working up to do I want to stay in this friendship or do I want to take that new job? And then seeing your body make the exact same yes and no responses, even though the magnitude of the choice is so much different. So that is the practice that I really lean on every single day. I, When I feel a tightness and a constriction, I am learning not to question it. That's just a no. And then I just have to figure out how to communicate that no in a way that sometimes you know unfolds pleasantly in my life. Mm, okay. Perfect. Okay. Uh, do you have a favorite quote, mantra, or word? Um, well, I'm looking in front of me right now at my desk, and I've got a post-it that says, if it costs my peace, it's too expensive. Hmm. So let's go with that. <laughs> I like it. I like it. And I think that kind of ties into what you were just talking about in terms of the um, tapping into kind of like your inner being, right? Is that fair to say? I think so. And especially in this world we live in where it's so easy to get caught up in what's expected of us and the metrics of, you know, how many followers you have and how much your your hourly rate is and, you know, these these external illusory measures of worth that are so often non-reflective of what really matters in life. Mm. So, I like to remind myself that what really matters doesn't have a price tag or a metric. It's something that can only be felt in the body and shared with other people. Very cool. Okay. Um, let's uh we're going to kind of transition now into your your upbringing and your uh your story. So, first of all, I I would like to know and have you just share with all of us Kate where you actually physically grew up. And then if you don't mind kind of painting the picture of your childhood for us, uh, that would be great. So um, what was your kind of like your home life like? Uh, talk about your school life kind of through through the years up through high school. Um, and just just what were what were you like? Who were you like um, when you were younger? Uh, just unpack that force up, like I said, kind of to and through high school. And then we'll just uh, do a little transition from that point. Sure. So I was born in New York, um, in Harlem. My mom was a midwife and she worked in a hospital in Harlem. So she had her, her friends and colleagues deliver me. Um, and then shortly thereafter, my parents decided New York was not where they wanted to raise me and my future sister, although that's where our entire family was. So it was a really interesting 
kind of rupture, I think, in the family. And they uprooted us from New York and they moved to a little place called Aspen, Colorado. And that is where I was raised. Um, that was home for 18 years. And it was really different back then than the Aspen we think of now of celebrities and movie stars. Um, it was just a quiet ski town at the time, very local, um, very sort of cozy and isolated in a good way and like a bubble, you know, bubble from reality. We would go to Denver to go back to school shopping at the mall like twice a year, but otherwise it was hiking and skiing and um, just that kind of low key mountain lifestyle. So I was a very creative kid. Um, I was an artist. My dad um, is an artist and my grandmother was also very creative. So art was something that was really important to our family. I would take art classes with my grandmother at the Anderson Ranch, which is a really amazing artist community in the Aspen area. Um, and my dad uh, was and still is a stone sculptor who makes these incredible abstract sculptures. So um, I just kind of played around with different art materials. I was a very magical kind of creative kid. I did a lot of magical thinking and magical play in the willows outside of my house. I would, you know, make potions and things like that, sparkles. And I don't know, just very much like that. Um, my sister was born when I was three and a half and she was kind of like a wrecking ball in, in my life. I think it was really hard for me to adjust to not having, um, the whole world revolving around me, I think for the first time in my little life. So it was a pretty, pretty big adjustment. She was a baby who needed a lot of sport and attention. She cried a lot. So I think I lost a lot of focus around that time. And later in my future, I discovered, um, a lot of trauma healing that needed to happen that kind of started at that time. Um, and she and I never, got along, never built a relationship. So I don't really know what that's about, but even as adults, we struggle to connect. Um, so that's kind of been a lifelong relationship that's been interesting. Um, however, you know, we lived together for all of our time there in Aspen and went through the Aspen school systems. We were both, um, skiers and I became a competitive freestyle skier. So I did moguls and slope style and aerials um, at a competitive level, at a junior Olympic level, um, which was really fun and amazing. I was the only girl in the freestyle team for a really long time. Um, and then another two girls joined me and it was just, it was a very cool experience. I think it kept me pretty focused at school, out of trouble, you know, having coaches who had my back. Um, it also injured my body. I had a couple of knee surgeries and some pretty, pretty devastating injuries that derailed that career for me before college. Um, but it was a really generative source of support and connection with my team and friends. Um, and let's see, I had, um, in high school, I had one boyfriend who was on that team with me and he died while we were in high school. So that was really impactful um, and surprising. That was like the first thing in my, in my awareness that was really hard. 
Um, so that was a process and it actually kind of brought me into a different level of spiritual connection and opened some portals of spirituality for me, just kind of investigating the existential questions of life and death. Um, so that was, that was very interesting. And, um, yeah, that kind of brings me through high school. Do you have any specific questions about that time? Yeah, I do. Um, your relationship with mom and dad, what, what was that like for you kind of throughout your, uh, your childhood and your, those teen years? So I have kind of two perceptions of that. I have the perception of that from when I was living it. And then I have the perception now looking back, which one would you like? Uh, if you don't mind, can you share both? Sure. Yeah. So growing up, I was very centered in this belief that I needed to be a really, really good girl that I needed to cause no problems. I needed to make everybody happy and really just kind of be quiet and stay out of the way. And so with that in mind, I didn't, I never really got in trouble. I actually got in trouble one time that I can remember in high school when I, I said I was sleeping over at a friend's house, but really we were both sleeping over at a boy's house and we got caught. And it was, that was like the one thing that I ever did that I remember getting in trouble for because I was just so hyper vigilant and aware of never, never doing anything wrong. So um, my relationship with my mom was at the time I thought it was pretty good, pretty steady, especially in high school. It felt like we were best friends, which I know now as a therapist is like a red flag because your mom's not supposed to be your best friend when, unless you're both adults, I think that can change. But so that was interesting. Um, and you know, she was really kind of in on my core life at the time. And I felt very close to her. My dad was, in my life, but kind of not in my life. I don't have a lot of memories of him, although I know he was there cooking dinner every night. He was kind of absent during the day, um, kind of an entrepreneurial spirit without a lot of um, follow through. So he was always working on something, but also just kind of not there. Um, so that was it felt like we were a pretty cohesive unit, but it also felt lonely because we were really far away from the rest of our family and rarely did we visit them. Rarely were they invited to visit us. And so looking back now, I see how isolating that was. And I think it was intentional actually on the parents' part, but um, it was really hard for me because I had all these cousins that I didn't know. And I had aunts and uncles that I kind of knew, but they weren't really a strong part of my life. Um, my mom's parents actually moved up to Aspen at a certain point. So they became part of my life, maybe middle school, middle high school. Um, so they were really important in our life. But beyond them, everyone else was, you know, very extended family type feeling. Yeah. And then as you kind of got into adulthood and looked back on your childhood experiences and your relationship specifically with your parents, what's kind of like your takeaway then from from that perspective or your perspective now? Well, I think I was drawn to the psychology field because I was trying to figure out what went wrong on an unconscious level that I wasn't aware of. I was trying to understand why people do what they do, what makes people tick, like what is this thing called trauma? And I didn't really know that I was pursuing a wounded healer's path. Uh, I think many therapists, if not all therapists, probably 
in some capacity are pursuing it for a similar reason. So um, it was great because when I went to grad school at Naropa University in Boulder, one of the requirements for the counseling degree is that you have to do your own therapy. Mm -hmm. And so I had a little bit of therapy um, in college, um, which I'm thinking is probably your next question for me about college, but that was a tough time where I did need to find some therapy. And then again, in grad school, when I was required to do therapy, I was like, okay, let's unearth this. Let's go into it. Let's talk about some of these issues. So it started a journey that has lasted, you know, decades and decades later. And here I am at a completely honest and different awareness that might still be somewhere in process. Like, you know, talk to me in five years and I'll know things I don't really recognize yet. But from where I stand now, I look back and in my new book, that's not actually sold to publishers yet. I talk about it as the sleeping giants perspective of trauma and childhood, where there's like this little one tiptoeing around a field of sleeping adults who are like, not hurtful really, but you know, if you step a toe out of line and you wake that anger or you wake that element in them that you're not safe anymore. And so it's like a childhood of tiptoeing around. And I think that I realize now that's what my childhood was. And that's why I had to be so, so good, so well-behaved, so quiet all the time. Mm. What was, uh, you mentioned uh, doing the skiing and things like that, uh, you know, in high school, uh, what was your overall high school experience like kind of looking back as an adult? Did you enjoy high school? Was it, was it a struggle both, uh, you know, academically and, um, you know, socially just, uh, what, what was that, uh, like for you, Kate, if you don't mind touching on that? Sure. So, um, academically, I always felt pretty solid, but when it came time for the SATs, it was rough. I'm just a really poor test taker for some reason. And, it was really hard for me to see that my intelligence wasn't being reflected in a way that mattered so much for my future. So that was probably the most stressful piece. Luckily, I did end up getting the tutoring I needed and taking the, I think it was actually the ACT that got me into DU, but the SATs were really tough. Um, so academically, you know, I did well. I was really focused on art at that time. And so much so that when it came time for college, I wasn't sure if I wanted to go to an art school or a liberal arts school. And I ended up going to a liberal arts school, but I was pretty close to, you know, going straight into a whole future of art. Um, so the academic piece was never really concerning. I, I think because of that good girl stuff, I never really dabbled in drugs and drinking. I was just really good girl. Cause I felt like I had to be. Um, but I, I had a pretty solid group of friends. Um, I had a couple of really serious boyfriends that was really important to me. Um, which now I understand looking back, you know, I was, I was just searching for safe relationships and that felt like a really easy way to have like a one-on-one -on -one connection with somebody that felt like trust and safety. Um, so I did have, some skier boyfriends that were impactful at the time. Um, and speaking of which, you know, in high school, I think that people might've said that there were like two versions of Kate. There was the Kate in life. And then there was the Kate on the ski mountain. And those were just really different facets of my personality because when I was skiing, I was like silly and I was 
a little punk rock. And, you know, like I had like a spiky, sparkly belt that I wore with my big baggy ski pants. And I would always be like listening to punk rock. And then at school, you know, it was like juicy couture, velour, sweatpants, <laughs> and that kind of thing. So there was there, I was trying to find my identity there, but those are actually, you know, two pieces that even now when I go skiing with people who don't know me that well, and that like, if they know me well in regular life and they ski with me, they're like, Whoa, this is a different side of you. Mm. Um, so that developed in high school. Cool. All right. Um, before we kind of transition into, uh, post high school, were there any adults that you feel like looking back uh, they really poured into you. They positively impacted you. They spoke into your life at some point in those younger years or not so much. There's a neighbor in our neighborhood who I still, you know, text with and send holiday cards to. Um, I think she's sort of minimally connected to my parents, but, uh, she was, felt like extended family growing up. She just felt like a safe person. Her kids, we're pretty close to me and my sister. We would carpool together. And um, so she's still in my life. And I think really fondly of her. And school-wise, there was there was an art teacher um, in high school. Her name was, I don't know, what her, I think her name was Barbara Smith, but we just called her Smith. And she was fantastic. She was a little strict in the way that, you know, like a quirky smile kind of, you know, strict on one hand, but supportive at the same time. Um, and she really helped me find my identity as an artist and understand that art was a legitimate way of expressing yourself in the world. So I remember her fondly. And I remember an English teacher, Andy Poppinchuk, was incredible to me. He was just supportive. I think he kind of just saw me. Maybe he was one of the first adults that I felt really seen by and really supported by. And I just look back with so much fondness about him. Cool. Love it. All right. Um, talk to us a little bit about college. Uh, you said you kind of had a choice between a liberal arts school and like a full on art school. Uh, mm -hmm. And you said that you you chose the uh, liberal arts school. So where did you go to school and what was your college experience like? And you can even go into uh, your your master's degree, your, your uh, um, you know, uh, graduate school uh, experiences, if you don't mind, Kate. Yeah, of course. So I searched, I looked at the Savannah College of Art and Design, uh, RISD, the Rhode Island College of Design. Um, I looked at the there was like one called Otis in LA and it was like, maybe, I mean, I feel like I can fit myself here, but I didn't know if I was really had belonging there. And I was looking around and, um, and then we went to DU and I stepped right on the campus and I'm like, yep, I belong here. That felt like true. Yes. In the body, this is where I need to go. And so I applied to DU I don't know if it's early action or early admission, but whatever the one is where if you get accepted, you have to go there. You no longer have choice. I was like, I want that one. I will come here no matter what. Please accept me with my borderline ACTL, you know, SAT scores. So um, I got accepted to DU, thankfully, which was so wonderful for me. Um, and in 
freshman year, they have what they call living and learning communities that are groups of students who have a similar interest and they kind of put you on the same floor together in the freshman dorm. And I joined the wellness living and learning community. So I it was so funny because we each kind of came to that community with a really different idea. You know, some people were like, into the gym. And they were like, this is what wellness is. They were really buff bodybuilder kind of people. Other people were more interested in nutrition and diet. And they were like, no sugar, no gluten. And then there were other people who are into meditation and that kind of wellness. So we ended up having a pretty eclectic group that I gelled with from day one and felt like I had a cohort, um, which was great socially, just a really sweet group of people, many of whom I'm still in touch with today, actually. Um, and I actually met my future husband, who's still my husband on like day one of orientation. Um, and yeah, it was kind of a, it was one of those sort of synchronistic things that now I look back and I'm like, wow, the stars really aligned for us to meet on that day. Um, we weren't like together on day one. We had a little, you know, back and forth through college. He was a division one hockey player. So he had like this sense of celebrity and ego and all this stuff that kind of pulled us apart, brought us together. And I didn't like hockey and, you know, all of that, but ultimately we've been together a long time. So the college experience, you know, socially was good academically. I loved it. I loved being able to choose my own classes and not have to take classes in math um, and in certain subjects that were just very hard for me. Mm -hmm. I did do a lot of writing in college, a lot of art. And I got my majors, I double majored in art and psychology with a minor in communications. And I had no idea what any of that actually meant for a professional career. So at some point in my junior year, I actually plugged it into Google. Like, what do I do with an art and psychology major? And then Naropa came up as a school that offered something called art therapy, which I had never heard of before. And I got really excited because it kind of seemed like it was made for me. And I looked at a bunch of different art therapy programs around the country. At the time there were, you know, it was growing and now it's even bigger. There are so many art therapy programs. Um, But I really liked Naropa because it had a focus on spirituality, which had become really important to me. And, um, there was their degree there is called transpersonal counseling psychology, which is essentially where psyche and spirit meet. And art therapy is a facet of that because art is inherently transpersonal because it reaches beyond just me. And it sort of allows me to connect and to like channel and to be creative in different ways. So um, I went to Naropa and I never lived in Boulder So I commuted a really long way from Denver to every day be in school. And so socially it was, you know, I had kind of my Denver people and then I just did school at at Boulder. I was living with my, um, my now husband at that time and he was building his career in the investment banking industry. And it was just like a really busy time for both of us, but I loved it. I loved learning about all of the psychotherapy and art therapy things. Like I just felt like I was completely immersed in something that was my interest. Um, 
And it was a great time of my life. That was a three-year graduate school program. I got fully trained in meditation. Naropa University is founded by a Buddhist monk. So that's a really important part of the curriculum. And I essentially learned how to sit with anything, my own stuff and other people's stuff. And I grew a skill base that allowed me to become the kind of therapist that's very difficult to shock. Hmm. Um, can you kind of explain to all of us uh, just a little bit more in depth, Kate, if you don't mind, like um, what 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 is art therapy? Because, I mean, I've heard of it, but I couldn't tell you what it is or kind of what the uh, focus of it is. So what is it and how does it help people that are, you know, going through different things in their life? Sure. So there are two basic schools of art therapy. There's art as therapy and art as psychotherapy. Art as therapy is kind of a studio model that believes that creating art in and of itself is healing, even if you don't process or analyze or diagnose a person based on their art. So this is why, you know, when you're feeling anxious and you pick up your pen and you just doodle on the margins of your page, it helps you. It helps move that energy. Like we were talking about with writing, it helps to create a supplement sublimation experience where what you're feeling transforms into something else that's sort of meaningful and more clear. So that's sort of the studio model that just making art is healing. The psychotherapy model is pretty much the kind of the work that I have grown into where you use art as a tool for achieving mental health and understanding maladaptive patterns, working through trauma, um, understanding the way that art impacts the brain and the nervous system, and then using that to help to soothe and ground um, and help people recover from either momentary experiences of anxiety or depression or really deep, profound trauma that's embedded in their system. All kinds of art materials are used, everything from your grocery store crayons to uh, fabrics to graphic design, computer arts, clay, and there's a lot of metaphor inherent in art therapy. So for example, clay can sometimes feel very flesh-like and it has a heaviness and a density. So for someone who's doing some work around maybe sexual trauma or physical trauma, clay can be re really triggering because it feels like skin. And so we don't want to expose people to that until they've reached a place in their healing where they can tolerate that discomfort. But then once they can, it can be really healing because it's providing an external place for that projection to live, to heal through it. Like watercolor would be another example. It's very hard to control. It drips, it bleeds. So if you're dealing with somebody who has really chronic anxiety and perfectionism, watercolor can be too triggering for them, but it can be a great edge for them to work with once they're starting to get a better handle on their perfectionism and work with it even more, then they can learn how to let the watercolor represent the messiness of life and learn how to tolerate that distress. Mm. Um. So you mentioned uh, kind of earlier uh, as you were unpacking your childhood and upbringing that in college uh, you had to seek out some therapy because you were going some going through some different things. Can you kind of uh, unpack that and kind of get into a little bit of more detail about what some of those things that you were struggling with and how did you kind of seek out therapy and what type of therapy was it? 
Yeah. So, um, when I went to college, I don't know exactly how or why or when, but it felt like on day one, my relationship with my mom completely derailed. Mm -hmm. And if you'll remember, it was, you know, I thought it was a really close relationship. I had called her my best friend. And so it was a really huge loss for me. And it also felt like I was being replaced because she now was seemingly best friends with my sister. And it just felt like I was gone. I didn't matter anymore. I had been replaced. And then I would call home for some support around the confusion. I really wouldn't get any. I would get a lot of you know, pathologizing, maybe something's wrong with you. Maybe you need medication. Like this isn't normal rather than support. So, um, I went and got some support because I thought something was wrong with me. And I can't remember if I started in the school counseling. I probably started there because that was just an on-campus resource. Um, and, I hopped around a little bit with trying to find the right therapist, which I think is always a good idea because it's not always a good fit. So um, kind of dabbled a little here and there with different therapists and just really trying to figure out, it's it's so interesting looking back now how little I understood about what was wrong in my family system. I was just totally taking responsibility for it all being my fault. And this relationship you know, ended because I'm bad and I'm wrong and I didn't do a good enough job. And, um, you know, my, my family system was really supportive of that narrative too, which was kind of just creating more of a problem. So every time I would go home and visit, I would be met with this lack of belonging, lack of acceptance, severe judgment. And as soon as my parents met my boyfriend, who's now my husband, it was like an instantaneous hatred of him. And it was really hard. It's actually still really hard. We've gone through a huge journey together, um, trying to extricate ourselves from the emotional violence that was basically just part of our life, trying to have belonging in my family system. And it just felt like that. Every choice I made, I was just met with a complete lack of acceptance, complete rejection of the life that I was choosing for myself. And I looked back, you know, eventually realized that it was because I was trying to individuate, trying to find my autonomy, my sovereignty, and within a system that is so built on codependency for power and control of certain people, it's really threatening when someone in the system wants to individuate. So that's what happened just freshman year. And it spiraled. I remember going on really long walks by myself, like in unsafe parts of Denver that now I'm thinking how lucky I am that I wasn't, you know, mugged or raped or any, you know, just really sketchy. I was really disembodied at that time. I had no sense of, you know, what was going on with me. I was just doing the best I could to make it through. And luckily, thank goodness I did. Hmm. Um, I want to ask you when you were growing up and with your family, uh, like referring to like your mom and dad, uh, was there like a, a religious aspect to your upbringing uh, that played into all of this? Uh, maybe because you um, departed from that or, or not at all? Not really. My family, my parents are both Jewish, come from Jewish families all through the lineage. Um, my mom went to a school that is called Yeshiva school. It's a very 
very religious. Like I think they even only speak Hebrew for half of the day. So really her parents made that a priority. And by the time she had kids, she was kind of burnt out on religion. So she just didn't really teach my sister and me about Judaism. Um, we would go to temple here and there with my grandparents. It was just a really sporadic part of our life. Um, but I don't think it really impacted this. I think what was more impactful was just this really deep dysfunction in my family system that had, it was multi-generational and really focused on power and control. And so, no, I don't think it was religious. Okay, cool. Um, okay. So once you, uh, got done with your like official schooling, you graduate with your undergraduate, you graduate with your, your master's degree, uh, your, your, uh, a, a licensed therapist, how does, life kind of professionally uh, unfold for you kind of um, during that season or those years of your life, Kate? So right when I graduated from grad school, um, I got a job at Naropa University as their academic advisor for the art therapy program, which felt really kind of safe and cushy. I had just, you know, spent three years there. I knew it. I knew the turf. Um it was also still that really long commute though for me. So it really wasn't sustainable. I knew it was like a waiting room where I was going to figure out what comes next. And I kind of wasn't sure the salary for, you know, entry-level therapists is insulting. It's impossible to live off of. So I was like, we got to find a better way. And at that time, I also was hired as a milieu therapist where I did my internship, which was at the Eating Disorder Center of Denver. Now it's called the Eating Recovery Center. Um, or ED care is what it's called now. Um, so it's rebranded since then, but I was a milieu therapist and art therapist there for a while. And that also felt pretty comfortable because I had been working with that population for about a year and I had some community. So I was sort of like tiptoeing into the professional world. Um, and once you graduate with your master's in a therapeutic degree, you can't just immediately get your licensure. Um, both my my ATRBC, which is my board certification as an art therapist, and my licensed professional counseling degree required postgraduate hours and supervision. Um, so it took uh, 2,000 hours of client contact and 100 hours of supervision, took two years of essentially like seeing clients and working up to the point where I could become licensed. So I did that. And um, I opened up my private practice while I was working part-time at the eating disorder center and at Naropa. And then I sort of slowly, I used their printer to like print out my client forms and you know, to try to use their library so that I could learn more about the gaps that I was missing in my professional uh, toolbox. Um, so it was kind of like a resourcing spot. And then I opened my private practice um, in 2010. And I started working as a, um, art therapist and licensed professional counselor. And, um, I got really lucky. So I'm pretty introverted and I like one-on-one -on -one connection. I don't love groups, but somehow I got connected to this women's group in Denver called the Denver Divas. And I went to a networking like happy hour thing, which I hate, I, oh, I still hate this kind of thing, but I was brave and I was like, I need clients. So we'll go hand out some business cards. And somehow I found myself in a circle of women talking with the representative for Groupon. And 
the group on women was like, wow, what's art therapy? And maybe we should run a Groupon for you. And so together we developed a 90-minute art therapy session for $19, which was like an unheard of price. Um, and I thought, you know, maybe five or 10 people are going to buy this thing. And there were almost 600 Groupons sold. So <laughs> of the 600, there were about 100 people who called me to fulfill their Groupon. So I had 100 90-minute art therapy sessions for 19 bucks, and I ended up building a full caseload based on that of ongoing clients. And I never had to market my private practice for decades after that. That just sort of skyrocketed me to a place where my practice became a really well-oiled machine, and I just always had the business I needed. And it was really successful for a really long time. And then COVID came and the burnout set in. So you may have questions, you know, between this and this, but I'll let you direct me. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's cool. Um, okay. Before we go any further, cause I don't want to forget to ask you this, uh, before we go any further, kind of in your entrepreneurship and, and, uh, business endeavors, um, you mentioned uh, obviously you did the skiing in high school. You were a part of this uh, this this wellness community. You're uh, in college. You're undergraduate. What when you kind of got into college and, and into adulthood? What what was your uh, did did you have a, a fitness practice or a movement practice? Did you get into going to the gym and anything like that? And has that played a, a major factor in your development as a human? over the years or not so much? Well, I think there was maybe a distorted perception of body image around the college age time. Um, so I used to use the gym mostly just to be like as thin as humanly possible, probably paired at that time with maybe some maladaptive eating that probably later attracted me to work with eating disorder patients um, because it was sort of familiar at a level that never became pathological for me. But I think I flirted with it a little bit there in college. So, um, you know, the gym and the calorie burning that became important at some point, but at a at certain point, it sort of tipped. Um, I did core power yoga, like pretty intensely for a really long time. And it wasn't necessarily because of calorie burning anymore. It felt like I was finally getting into my body and I was feeling my body and like the 3D element of being a person. And I liked the spiritual components of yoga. Um, core power yoga is not really as spiritual as some of the other yoga practices, but I did learn more about that um, in grad school from going to Naropa. Um, so I did yoga for a long time until my body just like revolted and was like, this is too hot. You're going to get a headache every time. And you're also going to tear your hamstring in a really inconvenient time. So my body was like, we're done. Um, so I stopped yoga and over the years I've tried to go back to it, but my body still says no. Now I'm just like, okay. Um, I co-facilitate retreats these days with a woman who's a yoga teacher and an Ayurvedic practitioner. And when she runs her yoga sessions during our retreats, I can't participate because my body is just like, mm -mm, we're not going to do yoga anymore. It's not good for us. So, um, I, I mentioned in college, I used to go for long walks. Um, walking is a huge, a huge thing for me. That's probably my main form of exercise. And it's not really like strolling. It's kind of like 
you know, hiking, walking up hills, walking fast, listening to podcasts, learning, you know, that kind of deal. But um, walking has become important. And as I learned as a therapist about bilateral stimulation, which is a core component of EMDR, which I am not certified in, but I know enough to know about bilateral stimulation, which is that when you have movement, repetitive kind of methodical movement on both sides of the body, it's really soothing for the nervous system. And so I can see how that helped me through all of these years and has become a really steady practice for me. So I go on pretty, pretty strong, you know, long, intense walks almost every day still. And, um, I still ski. So in the winter time, that's a form of exercise and it's kind of, that's like my spiritual place, my happy place. Now my kids are both in ski teams. So I've got an excuse to be there every single weekend. Um, yeah, so that's my exercise routine. Cool. All right. Love that. Um, okay. So let's take a step back into kind of the professional side of things. Um, so you, you kind of step out of your comfort zone, you go to this, uh, kind of gathering and, and you just make some connections and your business is kind of off to the races, so to speak. Um, what was it like kind of going from zero to a hundred in terms of being an entrepreneur, having your own business, your own practice. And before we kind of get into the COVID and, and, and all of that, uh, what's it been like for you, especially in those years before COVID and the burnout and all that, and kind of the, the genesis of the Radiant Life Project book, um, what, what was it like for you being an entrepreneur, having your own business and being somebody that's serving others through therapy and things of that nature? I just loved it. It felt so aligned for me to be, you know, finding a way to use creativity and my interest in the human mind together as one. And to be working one-on-one -on -one with people was really gratifying. I felt like I had really found a way to have depth and intimacy and connection in a way that was really generative for me. Um, I loved not working for anybody. I liked, you know, I'm a really efficient kind of type A worker B. Um, so I do a good job of keeping my business side of things really well organized. And, um, I'm always, you know, out there marketing something or selling something or working on something. So I think I'm a good match for the entrepreneurial kind of way of li living because I have a lot of motivation. Um, my friends think it's because I'm an Aries and I have a lot of like inner fire. Um, maybe it is, I don't know, but yeah. So the worker bee thing helped me build my business and sustain it. And the creativity of being able to do it how I want, build it out, work where I want, with whom I want, however my client body shaped itself, you know, was always my own design. So I appreciated that so much. Um, and I always pursued my own healing journey along the way too. I always had a therapist of my own. And for a really long time, I had a supervisor so that I would have somebody for the hard questions and, you know, to have client support so I didn't feel alone. And these days I don't have a supervisor anymore, but I do a lot of peer supervision and consultation with my colleagues. Mm -hmm. um, so I do think that's really important in private practice so that you don't feel lonely and that you don't get too locked into your own perspective. Mm -hmm. I think it's always um, helpful to stay curious and stay open and see what you might be missing or what you might be doing wrong. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it just felt so good. I just loved it for the longest time. And I would work with really high acuity clients who had really deep mental health issues, uh, suicidality. I got trained in a suicide prevention program called ASSIST. Um, I got trained in so many different 
things. I got, it just felt like, oh my gosh, it's like a candy store and I get to use it to um, help people, which felt gratifying for a very long time until it didn't. Yeah. Um, okay. You, you've, you've said something that uh, really uh, intrigues me because I uh, am the same way. And it was when you said that you really uh, enjoy kind of the more one-on-one -on -one personal connection with people um, as opposed to maybe like a larger group. And that's honestly one of the main reasons why I am so passionate about podcasting because it's just myself and another human having a conversation about life. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I'm also a public uh, education teacher. So there's, you know, 15 to 25 students in a classroom. And when I'm in that type of a setting, I, I can't make very good uh, personal connections with the students. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe that's something I need to work on and I am working on that, but there's just something inside of me that I just thoroughly love, um, you know, uh, preferably being in person with another human and just having that one-on-one -on -one connection with them. Because when I'm in a group, like being a public educator, I feel like I'm more of a manager than, uh, you know, just a, a mentor or being able to connect one-on-one, -on -one, right? And build that, that um, rapport and that relationship. So can you kind of expound a little bit more, Kate, on what that is for you? Like, why do you like that one-on-one -on -one connection better than the large group connection? And just walk us through that, because like I said, I, I can relate, uh, you know, uh, thoroughly on that. I think of people as like little solar systems with lots of planets, lots of different parts, and everyone is so complex. There's just a lot of facets. And so if you're sitting across from one solar system, I think it's like, ooh, how interesting. Tell me about this planet and that planet and these stars and that, you know, whatever, Milky Way galaxy. If you're sitting across from 25 solar systems, it's overstimulating. It's a lot. And there are dynamics between different people's solar systems where I'm sure, you know, as an educator, you know, like this one's not getting along with that one and that one's getting pulled in. And then that one's like misbehaving in the back. And then this one's like, just looking at you wanting, wanting your love. And like, there's just so much that I find it's a, it's an overload that just turns my brain off. And I, I go to a like almost disconnected state where it's like, sorry, this is too much. I'm out. Whereas when I'm with one person and I can feel the resonance and the attunement and the curiosity, it's being held in a container of just the connection that can hold and sustain that kind of connection and curiosity without being so overstimulated. Mm. And I do think that if you talk to an extroverted person who likes that, you know, 25 solar systems at once they probably don't value the depth and intimacy quite as much. Like they probably really appreciate the like little bit of here, little bit of there. And who are you? And who are you? Whereas I think someone who might identify as more introverted might be like, no, no, I don't want superficial. I want to go deep and I want it to be meaningful. And I don't think that's possible in a group like that. Although I will say in our retreats that we do, we'll have, you know, 15 to 25 people and it'll feel really deep. And I think the difference there is that everyone's resonating together. Everyone's showing up with the same level of intention and 
um, the, the space is kind of being held by everyone and they're bringing themselves fully. So I do think it's possible with conscious community, but I don't know if it's possible at like an office happy hour. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, that really resonates with me because I feel like I'm a, I mean, I'm the same person, but just because of what you said, like the overstimulation, I, I, I love that terminology uh, when I'm in a group of people, um, like I, I'm the same person, but I'm a different person. I feel like, especially in the public school setting, uh, you know, because there's so much going on, right? Like the classroom is, is, is my classroom. It's all the students there are my responsibility. There's just to keep it short and simple and to the point, there's a lot going on, right? Not only with the students, but with my own responsibility as a, as a teacher, as a protector. Right. Um, so I'm a little bit, uh, I guess I kind of take on that manager role and I'm maybe a little bit more serious and things of that nature than I would be, um, one-on-one -on -one with somebody. Like I recognize that in, in myself. So that's, that's fascinating. I love, I love your take on that and your perspective. That's, that's, I'm, I'm learning, uh, listening to you. And I, I, uh, I love that. I appreciate that. Um, Okay, so uh, stepping back into um, kind of like your professional unfoldings. So why don't you kind of start walking us through the burnout as you kind of uh, called it. Um, that kind of, I think, coincided with, with COVID and then um, the, the Radiant Life Project. Kind of like, can you just unpack all of that for us, uh, Kate, please? Yeah. So before the pandemic hit, I was... Like at the peak of my career, at the place where, you know, from grad school, if you would have been like, Kate, who do you want to be? Like, what would be success for you? I was there. It was like, great, we're making good money. I've got two beautiful children. I've got a happy marriage. Like I'm living this life that feels like I'm giving back and I'm also connected and it's creative and we're traveling and, you know, great. And and then the pandemic hit and suddenly I've got, you know, a, how old were they? Preschool, kindy age and a uh, first grade, second grade age. I can't remember exactly. And they were like looking at me with their worksheets and they're like, mommy, we have to do our schoolwork today. And I'm like, crap. Like, how am I supposed to do this while also seeing 30 clients this week? While my husband is like, you know, the banking system is crashing. The world is in flames. Like, we, we're wiping down our groceries. Like, ah. And I am a little anxious about health. Like, for me, that's important to say. Like, the, the pandemic was actually terrifying for me. I was one of those people who was like, I am never going outside again. And if I see a neighbor on the sidewalk, like, they better keep six feet distance. I was just really worried. So um, we figured out a way to create a pod with our neighbors and their kids. And um, we hired some babysitter type people to help us manage our children. And we worked from home. And my husband got like a, I think he called it a bat phone <laughs> that let him do all of his um, 
trading from home. Like it was crazy things that weren't possible. Like you could never trade stocks from home when you work for JP Morgan. Like it's just not allowed, but suddenly it's allowed. And um, suddenly I was allowed to work across state lines because so many people were a mess and we all needed to help. And so therapists were just stretching themselves thin doctors and nurses, like the healthcare industry was really strained during that time. And I know that's probably pretty obvious, but more it's more than even you would think like it was wild um and we were all it was just like nine o'clock session a 10 o'clock session 11 12 one it was like back to back to back and then we got to eat and i don't know you know i was like a fried nervous system um with a lot of pressure to keep functioning because the world just seemed like it was in a spiral downward so did the best i could for a really long time and in, I think it was 2021. It's so funny how that time period is like a time warp for me. Mm -hmm. Um, it was 2021. It was like, I think it was like December It was snowy and the kids were going back to school, but they were wearing masks, which in and of itself was such a mind, like who would ever think we'd have to mask our children to keep them safe? Like this was just paradigm shifting. So I was standing at the school bus stop with my neighbors and my friends. We we're dropping our kids off in the morning and everybody went home afterwards, except these two ladies who are my close friends. And they're like lingering. And it felt like there was something that needed to be said. And I'm like, what, like, what is going on? They're like, are you okay? Felt like an intervention. <laughs> and uh, I was like, tears immediately, like couldn't couldn't hide it, couldn't hold it back. And we stood there with our toes freezing in the cold. I don't know why it didn't occur to us to just like go to someone's house to have this conversation, but I don't think we expected that we would be there for an hour. And these two women just held the space to really reflect back to me how not okay I was and how I was working myself to this point that they could see and they could feel and they were worried. Mm -hmm. So we created... Um, this radical idea that I should take a sabbatical, which I had never heard of a therapist doing. I had only ever heard of really seasoned professors with like tweed jackets taking sabbatical in Oxford, you know, but uh, here I am in like Littleton, Colorado, like I'm going to take a sabbatical because this is not going anywhere good. And they helped me figure out all the logistics. And so I walked home from the bus stop that day. I immediately like made a few phone calls to specific clients who I felt like was like, and you've been ready to graduate from therapy for a long time. So like, why are you still here? And um, there were some others that were just never a good fit. And I was able to be like, look, let's find you a better fit. Here's a bunch of referrals. And so really ethically and with a lot of care, I winded down my practice um, to the point where I took off five months and I used that time to figure out what went wrong and how I got to such a not okay state without even like realizing that I was not okay. Um, and during that time, I wrote the Radiant Life Project. And the idea came to me that you can't meet with every person in the world one-on-one, -on -one and but they all can buy books. So why don't we try to reach them that way? Um, and that intention also kind of spiraled into like, maybe we should stand on big stages and talk about this. Maybe we should talk to podcast hosts about this. Maybe we should write articles for magazines about this. Like how can we reach the most people? And also during that time, 
um, it became really clear to me that my my ideal client had changed somewhere along the way. And this really high acuity mental health was no longer feeling so generative and getting suicide calls at 2 a.m. was just not working at all. Um, and having done it for 15 years, I was like, I think I did my time. Like, yeah. I think we can work with some higher functioning people now. So I came back from my practice after five months. I invited a small group of clients back who felt like they were aligned. Um, anyone else, I made sure they were referred to appropriate therapists that could support what they needed. Uh, people were pissed. Some people were really, they, you know, like felt really abandoned. There were some therapists who were like, how dare you take a sabbatical when people need you most? There were other therapists who were like, you're so brave. I'm inspired. So this brought out a lot from the woodwork from other people who are watching, uh, which was interesting. Um, and I rebranded as a coach and now I'm working as a coach teaching work that is motivated by health and growth and really transformative inner healing for the purpose of, um, aligned living really in life. And not to say that it doesn't still touch into the mental health because it, I think it always does and the trauma healing, but, um, I did maintain my therapeutic credentials, but I'm no longer using them for anything but publishing at this time. Hmm. Okay. So the question I want to kind of, uh, uh, ask you, Kate, then is, um, you said, you were kind of in that five minute, five months trying to figure out, quote unquote, what went wrong. So from your perspective, what did go wrong? What went wrong was my focus was so externally focused on everyone else's needs and on, you know, how to how the optics are of being a healer in society. And like we all have like so much uh like pressure when, when you're really busy, it's a good thing. Right. And if you're just, your work has been so crazy that, you know, you didn't even eat lunch. It's like a badge of honor. And I think I had bought into that a little bit. And there was an ego component of feeling like I was at the top of my industry and just, you know, doing so well that like nothing could ever take me down, which is always such a dangerous mentality. Right. Cause we're all human. Um, and feeling really, like bulletproof and impenetrable to the point where I was just avoiding how terrified I was of the pandemic and how stressed out I was by my kids and their worksheets <laughs> and my husband's stress. And, um, yeah. So I think what went wrong was just not a, not a lot of focus internally. It was really external. And, um, I think another piece was the misalignment of the clients that I was working with. It was too much high acuity, too much of the time. Um, I do think that when therapists work with really high acuity mental health, they do need to balance it with some clients who are more high functioning and lower acuity, just so that you're not like in suicide talk all day, every day, day after day. Um, and I, I made that mistake of just being like, give me more. I could take it. Give me more. I could take it. I'm like, nobody can take it. Right. Right. So from, from kind of that uh, point then, um, what, what boundaries, what, uh, kind of, uh, practices have you implemented to kind of keep yourself grounded, to keep yourself full, to kind of keep yourself aligned with, uh, you know, the direction you want to take 
your life and your family's life and, and your, your professional life? So when I rebranded my business, I only built in one clinical day. So I only have one day that I can see clients and there's only so many hours in that day. So if, if you don't fit into that day, then you don't fit into my calendar. And, um, that limits me on taking on too many clients. Um, because when I rebranded, there became other components to my practice that weren't there before, like writing books and speaking and planning retreats and doing podcast interviews, you know, like all of these things were new and you can't see 30 clients a week while also doing all of these things. So I limited myself by just creating a schedule that only left enough room for certain things. Um, I also returned to that practice of true yes and true no. And that's why when you asked me, you know, the intention that I've been practicing, it's self-trust and really listening to that. I also listen to that when I get a call from a new prospective client, um, if it feels like a good fit or not. I, if I have like any sense of squirmy tension resistance, it's a no. Like if it's not a true yes, it's a no. So I'm really abiding by that now. Um, I also spend a lot more time out in nature. The walks that I've told you are so important to me. I do them a lot more now. Um, my creative practice has been a lot more active. I do a lot more art making and writing. Um, and another piece that was really interesting, but that was also not really professionally connected is like, I was just being way too social before the pandemic. I, I had too many friends. I was like doing too many lunch dates and coffee dates and walks with other people. And it was such a relief for me when the pandemic hit and I couldn't see anybody anymore. I was like, oh my God, thank God. Like I don't have to go to lunch any, anymore ever again if I don't want to. So I rebuilt my social world um, to be much more intentional, much more intimate and way smaller and now when I have acquaintances, we don't go to lunch dates. Like if I see you at the kids pickup or if I see you at dinner one night, like it's, it's lovely, but we don't have to be closer than that. I don't have enough room. And so just being really discerning has been a huge tool. And then, you know, you got to do a little inner work around that because people don't like boundaries. So I had to do some work around letting people have their responses and letting them feel however they feel about the limitations that I need to keep me healthy. Um, and that was really helpful. Mm. So uh, to kind of put the, the um, uh, bow tie, so to speak, on kind of the pandemic, COVID-19, that kind of time frame, is there any, because you you mentioned, I mean, you, you've, you've been very candid, so thank you uh, during our conversation, but you said that you were, pretty anxious when the COVID stuff was going on. And, and, you know, that I think that probably affected you negatively in, in some regard. Is there any other takeaways that you kind of, uh, uh, I was just actually thinking about this earlier today when I was driving back from the grocery stores, like, I can't believe it's almost been, I mean, it's, it's four years since like the COVID pandemic really broke out, at least in the United States and kind of the, the craziness of it, right. The initial craziness of it. Is there anything else that you kind of took away, like personally, from that time frame uh, that you uh, wouldn't mind sharing with us in terms of just maybe growth, learning, anything like that? Yeah, you may find this interesting. So uh, my sabbatical was meant to initiate on May 1st, and I had been 
you know, working there with clients, like got to get to May 1st, got to get you ready. And then the week before May 1st, I got COVID and, you know, I was, I'd been like staving it off for a long time. It was like, I was like one of the last people to get COVID because I was so insulated and I got it and I was terrified and I was like, oh my God, now we're going to see how it works in my body because it shows up so differently for everybody. And it was a doozy, I will say. But what was interesting about it is it forced me to end my practice and start my sabbatical a week earlier than I expected. I didn't get to terminate with every client that I intended to in the way that I wanted. Like it was more like a text message, like, Hey, I have COVID. Like we can't do our last session. Um, are you okay? Like you have the resources you need to fly free from here. So that was a really interesting lesson for me in surrender to just the things I can't control. And no one was more cautious than me during that pandemic. And no one laid out a more thoughtful plan for terminating with these clients and starting the sabbatical and having this whole thing. And it just didn't work out. You know, it reminds me of like when I had my babies and I had these birth plans that like didn't work out and I had to fly by the seat of my pants and just surrender to what was really happening real life. Like we just have to face what presents mm. and getting COVID was like that for me. It was like, there's absolutely nothing I can do about this right now, except clear my schedule and go to bed. Yeah. Mm. And so I learned that and I, I still practice that in all the ways. Surrender is very hard for me. Yeah, me too. I, I have to remind myself that I'm a work in progress. Uh, today is not going to go uh, as planned. It's not going to feel perfect. It's not going to be perfect. And you just really got to, you got to roll with it. Otherwise life's just going to kind of roll over you and you're going to be uptight and, and, and a complete mess. So, okay. Um, a few more things I want to touch on Kate, and then we'll kind of start wrapping up, uh, our conversation for today. But, um, now what is, if you have something I'm assuming you do, but what's kind of like your long-term vision or pursuit in terms of, uh, you know, your coaching and you serving others and helping others and empowering others, um, you know, uh, all, all of that, whatever you're doing, like professionally today, is there kind of like a, a future vision and pursuit with that? And if you don't mind sharing that with us, what, what would that look like or be? Yeah, well, the writing is, I'm just, my heart is really full with the writing and I'm having a really good experience of alignment in teaching that way. Um, the Radiant Life Project has been received really well. I'm so grateful for all the people who are reading it, willing to do their work, like really willing to step into this. And so the next book that's coming out, um, it's done, it's written. It's just now like we have to do the whole dance with publishers, um, which is a process that I learned uh, with my last book, but I'm excited for that. So I see that there's going to be books. There will be more books. I have a lot to teach. I'm trained in so much. I've lived through so much. And I really like this medium of authorship to share that. Um, I also really love the partnerships that I'm creating for uh, public speaking and for retreats. And I'm creating a really nice balance that feels good between opportunities that 
are paid that people have to sign up for and opportunities that I'm giving away for free to make this work accessible. So like, for example, this month I have a free book club for my book. That's two phone calls where you get to just like show up and share and have community and spend time with people who are doing this work too. And I don't want them to have to pay for that. I just want them to have community. Um, whereas, you know, I'm going to fly to Virginia and I'm going to have a four day retreat and yeah, you're going to have to pay for that because I'm professional and I have, you know, qualifications that make me able to help you. So I appreciate the balance of being able to kind of give and take in that way. And I am being brought into contact with so many cool people that, you know, in my little isolated private practice where it was just me and like 6,000 clients. Now it's, me and you here having this conversation and me and this magazine having that collaboration. And it just feels so much more expansive and fresh. And I feel like I can take all that I know and all that I've learned and roll it into something new. Mm -hmm. And it feels like it's surrounded by light, which is always a good sign for me because I feel like such a light being and a light bringer that if something is feeling dim and dull, that would be an indication that it's out of alignment, but this has so much light behind it um, and so much intention, which is why I'm calling it radiant. You know, it starts here and it radiates outward and it creates a ripple effect that goes farther than I have any clue will ever reach. Like I got the news this week that my, my book is being reviewed for publication in Korean, Chinese, Arabic, Dutch. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's radiating into another country you know, all these other countries. So I am all for that. I just want this work to be accessible. And I feel like it's starting to get to that magnitude. It's really great. Uh, uh, I came across you. I mean, I didn't know who you were at all. And I live um, just outside of uh, Durango and uh, in uh, uh, a little community, it's like 2000 people. And I was actually in the library and came across your book and saw that you uh, live in Colorado, which obviously I do too. And I was like, you know what? I'm gonna reach out to this uh, this individual and see if she'll come on the podcast. And here we are. So just the alignment of, to use your word, to, the, the alignment of what you're doing and putting your uh, experiences and your education and, and everything that you're doing out there, that's literally how I came across you is in a, you know, a library in a little town of uh, Southwest Colorado, I, I came across your book and, and here we are, you know what I mean? So that's, that's so cool that um, that's kind of how I came across you. And that's kind of just what you shared that you're, you're really passionate about and you're uh, feel like you're, you're in alignment with that's uh, it's, it's just, uh, it's unique to kind of see how that's come, come to be in terms of our conversation today. Yeah. Thank you. And that makes me so happy that you just, don't know me and you find my book and it calls to you. And, you know, in this world of like Instagram celebrity and stuff, like I just, I feel like it's important for people to know I am not an Instagram celebrity. I do not have a hundred thousand followers or anywhere near that. And, and I know that's not even Instagram celebrity. It's like millions, but you don't have to be like that to make an impact. Right. You right. know, you just have to shine your own gifts into the world in whatever way you can and trust that the people who are meant to find them will find them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to touch on uh, motherhood because obviously I'm assuming that's been a big part of your life and you've learned a lot from 
motherhood. So maybe just, you know, in, in, a, in a, a, you know, a, not a few words, but just, you know, if you want to kind of keep it short, uh, you know, motherhood, what has that taught you? What has that meant to you? Uh, what's it like for you to, to be a mom and to have that responsibility of, of your kids to, you know, to raise them, to teach them and, and everything that motherhood entails? Motherhood is massive. And for me, it was really different than what I expected. Uh, the illusion that I had of, you know, this joyous thing of motherhood. Um, it's hard. It's really hard. And there are also moments that are just so precious that you can kind of see how it works in nature. Um, without these precious moments, we wouldn't have the sustenance to keep doing it. And um, it's really important to me that moms know around the world that if it feels hard, it's because it is, and it means you're doing it right. Um, my kids have taught me everything. All of the lessons that were the hardest for me to learn came from my children because they are these persistent participants in my life that are so innocent and so um, they're just so pure that they act as a really clear mirror to shine back to me the things that I'm projecting and some of the unhealed stuff that I still have left to work on. Um, and it's really exciting to see a whole nother generation that is sitting on my living room couch, you know, like just waiting for me to teach them the mistakes I made so that they can hopefully avoid them. And I'll tell you one of the things I really love about my hope for motherhood is that when each of my kids was born, I opened up an email address for them, uh, like their name at gmail.com kind of thing. And in place of a scrapbook, I write them emails occasionally. And my intention is to give them the password when they're old enough, and then they can read my emails. And so when I write to them, I feel like I'm teaching, I'm, I'm talking to their future selves who are going to be ready to learn the things that maybe I can't teach them now. They're not developmentally ready for, but sometimes I just get hit with a really important thing I want my kids to know. And if they're not ready to hear it right now, they're eight and 10. And so it limits me, you know, especially with really emotional things. I'll write an email to their future self and I'll, I'll try to teach them something that I've learned and give it to them in that format so that maybe someday it'll benefit them. Um, because that's, you know, that's the way I'm shaping them. I'm just trying to teach them. Um, they're teaching me, I'm teaching them. Hopefully at the end of this whole thing, we end up with a beautiful relationship because that is a hard, really hard outcome. You know, most families have so many issues and especially these days with all the awareness on intergenerational family trauma and people going no contact and estrangement. Like, I think it's a real gift when your kids want to hang out with you when they're adults. And that's my hope. Hmm. You find yourself, uh, Kate, um, obviously we've already talked about your childhood and, and your relationship with your parents. You find yourself, um, kind of looking back on those experiences you had as a young, uh, person and maybe trying to avoid some of, uh, uh, the, the repetition maybe, or the repeating of what, how your parents parented you, or have you kind of just let all of that go and you don't really, uh, think about that type of stuff? I think about it every single day and. I identify as a cycle breaker and I am actively diverting multi-generational patterns mm -hmm. from reaching my children um, by doing things differently than was, was done in the generations before me. Um, 
And, you know, I think if you think of evolution on any scale, we learn from the people who came before us what not to do. And that can happen when you have really traumatic parents. It can also happen when you have really healthy parents, but they make really normal mistakes. And so the idea for me is that my kids are probably going to be messed up in some way. Like maybe they'll be on a therapist couch talking about me someday, but hopefully they're not talking about the same things I was talking about, about my parents. Hopefully they have new issues and I've set them up to not repeat the things that have been so pervasive in our lineage. And if I can shield them from what I've experienced, I think that's my responsibility as their mom, but I can't shield them from everything. So it's my responsibility to also show up and make amends when I've made mistakes and be curious to their experience and really listen and honor their individual perspective on what it was like to be my kid. And someday if they're in their twenties, thirties, forties, and they're like, Hey mom, you really messed up. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be right there to be like, what can I do to make it right? Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Okay. Um, so I mentioned I live in Colorado, which I do. I used to live in Denver. I actually used to personal train in Littleton. You mentioned you live in Littleton. Uh, and, uh, I'll be moving back to Denver in June. I, I took a job up there, a teaching job. So I'm excited to get back to Denver cause I love it. But, um, you mentioned the word community several times in our conversation. There is from my perspective, uh, I've, I've done, I used to live in Colorado Springs and I traveled a lot to Denver to do podcasting. So, um, outside of the three months that I lived in Denver, I've, I've spent a lot of time up there and in, in Boulder as well. Love it. Um, from my perspective, there's a very unique community in Denver. And uh, there's a lot of like-minded people. There's a lot of like-minded energy. And I, I just, I personally enjoy it. But um, in terms of like Denver as a community, uh, you know, kind of the, the the therapy community and just maybe the coaching and all of that, some of the things that you're interested in and you're pursuing and 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 you're involved with, uh, Kate, what's that community like? And, and just what's Denver like for you in the time that you've been up there? Is it something that you enjoy being in that city? Yeah. So Denver's changed a lot since I've been here for so many decades at this point that I, I watched, I watched this huge explosion happen here and it's so busy now. We have to be so strategic about when we drive to the mountains and, you know, making reservations for restaurants. And it's just a really bustling city because there's a lot of amazing things to do here. There's great food and there's great theater and we've got the mountains and we've got the city and it's a, it's just a really awesome place. Our four seasons are incredible here, not the hotel, the, the nature. And it's just a really beautiful place to live. And I love it. And kind of growing up here by going to DU and then just sticking around afterwards. I've been here for so long. I feel like I know everybody, even though I don't. But, you know, I, I'm really well established in this community from being a therapist here for so long. And the therapeutic community here is so beautiful. There are so many people who have helpful perspectives on what the world might need and how to show up and everyone from coaches to psychiatrists to energy workers. There's a lot of alternative medicine here and interest in that um, meditation circles, yoga communities in the park. Like it's just a really rich, lovely city. And I, I'm planning on living here forever. I mean, who knows what forever will bring, but I can't think of anywhere else I'd rather be. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a favorite uh, restaurant uh, within kind of the Denver 
metro area that that you enjoy or your family enjoys going to? I have been going to Cochina Calore and Cherry Creek for years. They have this pasta eggplant parmesan thing. I think they call it pasta lasagna. It's like amazing. Eggplant parm is one of my weak spots. So that would definitely, that would be that. And then I feel like there's some pretty good sushi here in Denver. Sushi Den is pretty well known, but sometimes impossible to get in. So uh, sushi sasa is good. Um, there are these incredible soup dumplings at Shalone downtown. There's so many good restaurants. Yeah. 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 Cool. Okay. Um, I think that's a great place to kind of wrap up, uh, our chat today. Uh, Kate, um, I'm going to kind of just give you an opportunity right now. If you, uh, want to share, um, with us, any final thoughts, any final words that you might want to leave with, with, uh, all, all of us, uh, I want to just kind of give you that opportunity and then, if people want to connect with you on social media, where can they find you? Um, you know, if there's a website, where can we get your book? Um, just all the things that you kind of want to maybe just uh, put out there and share with us in closing. I'm going to turn it over to you and then I'll do a quick outro and we'll we'll wrap it up. Uh, before you go, uh, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast and uh, being candid with us, sharing your story and just kind of getting into some of the, the nitty gritties of uh, your life, your experiences, um, both personal and professional. So um, I just want to say thank you so much. Okay, Kate. Thank you. It's been good talking with you. Um, so you can find me at the radiant That is sort of my, my main website, my hub for all the things um, on Pretty much all the social media sites, my handle is The Radiant Life Project. Um, for local Colorado and Denver people, I've got a one-day retreat coming up in Morrison, Colorado by Red Rocks, July 6th. So if you're interested in a retreat, go to theradiantlifeproject.com and you can find it there. Um, so that's kind of how to connect with me. You can find my book anywhere you buy books online. Uh, probably the most common place is Amazon. Just search the Radiant Life Project and it'll pop up. Um, and I'd say the thing I'd like to just leave you all with today is um, maybe just hope, you know, that, yeah, there's hope and it involves your participation. Um, hope is not a passive thing where you just sit back and wait for things to get better and change. Hope is movement toward what might feel better with your actions and maintaining an open mind and a perspective of curiosity and strength as you work towards all of that. So during a time on our planet where things are really hard, just keep hope in your perspective and know that you play a part in that. Beautiful. Awesome. Um, is there any idea of a time frame of when your next book will be out or is that kind of all uh, still up in the air at this point, Kate? It is still up in the air. I would say at least a year because the process with publishing is pretty long. But if you do want to keep up with that, um, you can join my newsletter on the radiantlifeproject.com. Or if you follow my socials at the Radiant Life Project, I will be posting updates. So please join and connect with me. I love to have uh, contact with my community. I respond to all my DMs. I, you know, I really want to build community with this. So feel free to be in touch. Ask me your questions and we can get to talking. Okay. Awesome. Thanks again, Kate. I'm going to do a quick outro here and then uh, we'll, we'll get you out of here. Sound good. Sounds great. Okay. Awesome. 
all of you who are tuning in to another episode of Curious and Candid. I just want to say thank you so very much. Um, I appreciate all of you. I value all of you. And I'd love to connect with you guys. If you'd like to connect with me, there's a couple places that we connect. We can connect. The first place is Instagram, Curious and Candid Podcast. And then you can also just uh, send me an email. Uh, that email is curiousandcandidpodcast at gmail.com. Before you guys uh, leave today, please subscribe to Curious and Candid on iTunes. Leave us a five-star rating and review. I greatly appreciate that. And then if you guys are interested in holistic lifestyle coaching, you can check out my website, which is awakentrainingandnutrition.com. Again, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Curious and Candid. We'll catch you all next time.